Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And before I get started in this week's episode, I'd just like to ask or remind you that uh, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, please share it with family and friends. And most importantly, uh, if you're able to leave a rating uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, that certainly helps with the rankings uh, and it means that uh, it's found by new, more new listeners uh, and the more the merrier. So that would be of uh, great help if you're able to do that. Okay, so let's get into this week's uh, topic then. Uh, one that I don't, I think might be a little bit controversial and I'm uh, most interested to see sort of what uh, response it uh, generates Now, conventional wisdom is that it is much harder to buy property today than it was two or three decades ago. And in fact, a lot of parents, you know, worry about how how will my child get into the market um, and so on and so forth. Uh, Today's podcast is really about um, potentially disabusing that notion and suggesting that in quite a few respects, it can be easier to buy property today. Uh, and for some people, it is actually easier to buy property today than 30 years ago. Now, that's not going to be, well, firstly, it's not a widely held opinion. Uh, so I'm sort of testing, you know, the general conventional wisdom that property is a lot more expensive today, uh, or harder to buy, I should say, not more expensive, harder to buy. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's going to be a cohort of people that uh, might be open to listening to my thesis. Uh, and there's some that are going to disagree. But I guess the whole point of this podcast is uh, is to really um, investigate and consider, you know, what is conventional wisdom and how do we apply it and um, really looking through, you know, most of the rhetoric that is out there in the marketplace. Okay, so let's get into it then. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that have changed over the last 20 to 30 years uh, to 40 years um, that have made it easier to buy property, uh, and most importantly, uh, easier to buy the right property, and let me underline that, the right property, uh, compared to 30 or 40 years ago. So really to work out how to use property to get ahead financially, uh, I would say it's that's easier today uh, than what it was 30 or 40 years ago. So let me then talk about um, all these advantages that I identified that have occurred or transpired over the last uh, few decades. Uh, and then I will uh, round it out by talking about, you know, how does that relate to prices? Because obviously prices have risen substantially over the last uh, four decades. Uh, and so put that in context. Okay, so let's get into it. And it will be a little bit of a longer podcast today, so I apologise uh, for that. Uh, the first um, point I would, or observation, I guess, is that there is a, a abundance of information, knowledge, strategies, and advice that are available mostly through the internet uh, and mostly for free compared to you know tw- even 20 plus years ago. Now, we know the right advice is critical in terms of building wealth. Uh, because firstly, um, it doesn't waste time. You know, you don't waste time going down the wrong road. Uh, and secondly, you don't lose money by investing in the wrong investment or taking the wrong approach and so forth. So instead of learning by trial and error, which a lot of people do, uh, if you're able just to download a whole bunch of good advice into your head and follow that, uh, then you've, you know, you're, you're miles ahead of the pack. 
Now, there's a huge amount of information, as I said, you know, um, uh, podcasts like this one, uh, blogs, forums, books, websites, uh, software, apps, you know, you name it, there's a lot out there to help you. Now, that's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it's difficult to really sort through, you know, the good information from the bad information. But the point is that if you want to find it, it's certainly out there. I purchased my first property uh, almost exactly 25 years ago and no such information was available. You know, there were a few uh, books around property investing, but there really weren't many. And really the only way you could learn about these sorts of things is if you were lucky enough to, you know, know someone that had been successful with with property investing uh, and then hopefully just sort of follow their advice. Uh, even when it came to getting a mortgage for that first property that I purchased, there wasn't, there really wasn't any information about mortgages, loan structuring, tax considerations, all the sort of stuff that, you know, we talk about today. Uh, I went to CBA and really just relied on the mobile lender that came out to our home to, you know, sign up that mortgage. And on reflection, that individual certainly wasn't uh, setting the world alight or going to win any awards uh, with respect to the advice they provided. But today, of course, you can find out, you know, um, what sort of deposit do you need to get into the market very quickly. Uh, You can find out how to maximise your borrowing capacity. You can go to a mortgage broker and they can scour 35 lenders in one foul swoop and um, work out which which lender has the highest borrowing capacity to allow you to buy the highest quality asset. Uh, you can work out uh, what makes a, a property investment grade and uh, where the growth is. Uh, you can uh, search specific properties and streets and locations to have a look at you know, past growth rates and performance and so forth to identify or at least uh, identify growth areas and and investment grade locations and also, uh, you know, give you an idea of what your potential future capital growth can be. Uh, There is just so much available information in order to get ahead by using property, whether it's investing in property or an unoccupied property, but to make the right decision. That's so much easier today than it was Uh, 20 or 30 years ago. As they say, knowledge is power. Uh, The next observation would be borrowing capacity. Um, uh, 30 to 40 years ago, borrowing three times your gross income was seen as relatively high risk. You know, that was a big loan amount. Uh, Today, according to the banking regulator, APRA, uh, it classifies a high-risk borrower as anyone that borrows more than six times uh, their gross income. Uh, now, of course, I've come across uh, people that have borrowed more than 10 times their gross income. Uh, and of course, I'm not suggesting that's a good idea. In fact, in uh, you know, there's no um, perfect rule of thumb in that, that applies perfectly to every situation. But in general terms, I think 10 times income is, is too much. Uh, in fact, way too much for most people. And, and you know, overborrowing is risky and so forth. But somewhere between six to eight times, as a general rule, um, isn't always risky. Now, for some people, that is going to be too much. For others, that is going to be comfortable. So, uh, you know, these rules of thumb in terms of uh, multiples of gross income uh, are just guides. Uh, They're they're not a, uh, a perfect rule to live by. But really, if we say that, you know, three times income was high and the banks really wouldn't, would be very reluctant to spend, uh, lend more than three times income, uh, say 40 years ago, 
uh, whereas today the range is somewhere between six and eight times income uh, and potentially up to nine. So really borrowing capacity over the last 40 years, which really goes to your ability to be able to purchase and pay a higher price, has either is increased by two to three times, so two to three hundred percent over that period of time. Now, in terms of LVRs, uh, again, forty years ago, eighty percent was the max. Uh, you can borrow today ninety five percent, so you're really leveraging that deposit base uh, a lot more than what you what you could uh, many decades ago. Um, the, the downside, of course, is you have to borrow more to get into the market. So I'm not discounting, I'm not saying it's more affordable to do that. I'm just talking about the ease of getting into the market. Well, certainly an increase in borrowing capacity has assisted uh, or made it easier to get into the market. Uh, of course, there's a lot of temptation around today as well, um, which sort of counteracts some of this. Uh, you know, there's, there wasn't really, think about 40 years ago, you know, the internet didn't exist. If you wanted to go buy something at a store, it's really, you know, how close is, is a store geographically to you and um, their um, uh, product range will really dictate, you know, what your opportunities are. So, you know, if you wanted to go and buy sugar, there was one brand of sugar and that was your only option. Today, there are, there are several options. And so it's, uh, there's a lot to spend your money on today. Um, if you're not disciplined, you know, you can get sucked into the marketing and, and spend a lot more and, and want a lot more, you know, in terms of quality of furniture or fittings or, you know, um, clothing or jewelry or whatever it might be. Right, so there's a lot of temptation out there, and and that can, uh, you know, that that's obviously difficult for people to deal with, particularly younger people that might want everything and without sacrificing. So whilst uh, borrowing capacity is increased, you know, that sort of counteracts it a little bit, um, or or in some people's uh, situations uh, a lot, um, and that's a difficult battle to uh, to fight, uh, particularly for most young people, as I, I said. Okay, the next observation is really earning capacity and uh, employment opportunities. You know, the internet has certainly made it a lot easier to connect with people around the world. Uh, and that means that depending on your occupation, you can explore job opportunities that are far afield. And in fact, given the increased acceptance from work, work from home, um, it means that, uh, you know, it's not even necessary for you to be in the same country as your employer. Um, and so whilst these advancements make the job market more competitive, arguably, um, for some occupations, it's literally opened up a world of opportunities. And so for first-time buyers, um, they can explore a lot more opportunities today to increase their income at a relatively rapid rate. Uh, than what was possible, say, three or four decades ago. Now, I'm going to talk about uh, incomes a little bit more later on when I sort of bring this all back to current or relate it to current prices um, and give you a couple of examples. But the general theme is that if you want to earn more and you want to um, find every opportunity to increase your income, well, that's easier to do today, or at least that information is easier to do to find today than it was uh, 20 to 30 years ago. Of course, if your occupation doesn't allow that and you want to work on a, a side hustle or something like that, an additional sort of income stream, again, there's oodles of uh, information to certainly help you uh, in order to do that. So um, your ability to increase your income today compared to uh, 
20, 30 or even 40 years ago uh, is is not even the same ballpark. Again, that's not going to be not going to apply to every occupation, of course, but um, for lots of occupations, that's true. Okay, the third observation is really family guarantees and the bank of mum and dad. Uh, and I've done a, a podcast uh, previously on the what's called the inheritance tsunami that's coming our way over the next uh, uh, twenty to thirty years as baby boomers pass on their wealth to their children. Um, but that has a, a big impact today. So, you know, one of the biggest impediments of getting into the market uh, is really having a minimum deposit. And first home buyers need around about 12%, so 5% deposit plus about 7% for costs. Uh, and that can take a long time to save. Whereas if you've got uh, a parent that's willing to give you a family guarantee, so use equity in their property as security for your loan, at the first home buyer's loan to get into the market, uh, that can circumvent the you know time that would be needed to save that deposit. Meanwhile, as you're busy saving that deposit, you know the the prices, uh, property prices in the market typically are uh, increasing, and often uh, increasing at a rate that uh, you, you know faster than you can save, which is a, a bit of a conundrum. So, uh, whether it's a, a family guarantee, you know, using equity in parents' property or whether it's in early inheritance or a loan or a gift or something like that, um, at least there's a lot more options or at least uh, uh, property buyers are uh, using a lot more of these options uh, and they weren't available uh, 20 plus years ago, that was for sure. My next observation is really around cash flow management tools and information. So in order to establish good cash flow management habits, there is a lot of information available um, in terms of uh, establishing your really strong saving habits. And there's, there's a twofold benefit to that. Obviously, the more you save, the sooner you can get into the market uh, if you're a property buyer. And secondly, it will demonstrate not only to you, but also the lender that you do have surplus income uh, and that will help with demonstrating your borrowing capacity. And of course, there's a large array of tools and apps and so forth that help you do that and track spending and, and develop a budget and then track that budget and so forth. Uh, and a lot of those weren't available uh, several years ago. In fact, last week's podcast, I talked about um, uh, you know, a good cash flow management uh, strategy. Now, of course, as I mentioned previously, there's a lot more to spend your money on. There's a lot more temptation around today than there was 20 or 30 years ago. So that can be difficult to counteract. But certainly if I want to find a way to manage my cash flow better today, uh, I can do that very easy on the internet uh, with a, within a short space of time uh, without it costing me any money. Um, the next observation is that it is easier to invest outside of your domicile location. So this is really for people that might live in a very small country town, for example, and they might be thinking, look, I want to use property to get ahead financially, but of course investing in their small town might not be the best way to go in terms of future investment returns. So then if they decide, okay, I'm going to invest further afield into a capital city or something along those lines, um, to work out, you know, do that research and to connect with people that are going to help you do that, like buyers, agents, mortgage brokers, those sorts of things, um, is much, much easier. Now, I would, uh, I must caution you, I, I would never buy a property site unseen. It's important that someone completes a physical inspection, whether that's you or uh, a uh, advisor that you engage that's representing your best interests. 
but to invest outside of your domicile location, geographical location uh, today is a lot easier um, to do uh, and requires less travel time uh, uh, than what it did uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and my final observation is really about equity in dollar terms. You know, to go and buy a property and accumulate over a million dollars worth of equity um, is relatively easy to do today and uh, relatively difficult to do uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, for example. Really, all you need to do is buy one uh, really good property and hold it for a couple of decades. Uh, and chances are, you're going to end up with more than a million dollars worth of equity in today's dollars in 20 plus years time. Uh, so of course, the capital growth rates are important. When we look at investment performance, we always express it as a percentage. And that is the most meaningful way to compare investments, of course. But um, dollar value uh, performance or impact also, um, it's not a way of measuring the performance of investment, but it's something we need to um, acknowledge or realise, you know, that accumulating dollar value equity these days, because we're investing a lot more and borrowing a lot more, of course, there's a lot more leverage. As a result, though, over longer periods of time, there's a lot more equity too in dollar terms. And we've got to pay for expenses in retirement with dollars rather than percentages. So it is uh, relevant from that perspective. Now, of course, you've got to service that debt and eventually repay it, whether that's by selling the property or repaying it from cash flow and so forth. So I'm not ignoring the fact that there is high, le high leverage. High leverage um, means uh, typically higher risk uh, and it's not for everyone. So I, I acknowledge the, the counter side to that, uh, that um, point I'm trying to make, uh, but really to accumulate net a million dollars in, in a property over the next 20 years isn't particularly difficult. Okay, so let's then relate this to higher property prices and put everything in perspective because whilst there's uh, lots of advantages that I've just spoken about, of course the biggest disadvantage today is that property costs a hell of a lot more than it did uh, 40 years ago. Uh, so I had a look back and the average... Uh, uh, median uh, house price in Melbourne and Sydney in 1980 was only $53,000. Uh, adjusting for inflation, that equates to $268,000 today, but still really cheap, right? Um, given the average median house in September 2022, uh, that quarter was $1.2 million. So really property has, the, the price of property in real terms over the last uh, 42 years has gone from 268,000 uh, to 1.2 million uh, times or really have increased by uh, four and a half times. So then let's relate that increase to the increase in both borrowing capacity and incomes. Uh, so let's talk about incomes first. Now, I'm not talking about the average Australian income. I'm saying there's a cohort of people that have benefited from higher incomes over the last few decades as a result of some of the things that I've spoken about. Um, and so I don't really have a big uh, sample size statistically to uh, rely on, but um, speaking to my parents uh, about these sorts of things over time, um, I thought I would relate it to um, what my father was paid uh, when uh, in 1970 
only a couple of years after he started his uh, first job. So he worked for CSIRO, which is a Australian government research organisation. And in 1970, he was paid $4,000. <laughs> it actually makes me laugh. Uh, it's, in, in context for today, it's obviously a tiny salary. That's an annual salary. Um, and really that equates to about $53,500 today after you adjust for inflation. Uh, I had a look at CSIRO's uh, enterprise uh, agreement uh, and for his band, his salary band, uh, he would be paid around about $100,000 today. So since 1970, in real terms, uh, salaries at CSIRO have doubled, uh, which... Um, uh, you know, which suggests or shows that incomes have certainly uh, risen in real terms uh, quite a bit over the last few, a number of decades. Uh, he retired in 2001, and in real terms, his salary has increased by about 30% since 2001. So if it's doubled since 1970 and increased about 30% uh, since over the last 21 years, it shows that... Um, uh, it, that mostly incomes have increased substantially over the last 20 to 30 years, more so than the previous uh, 20 years. So in the 70s, or really incomes have increased really in the almost 90s and 2000s, uh, that's where we've seen most of the income increase. If I look at my own situation, uh, I landed my first job as a graduate accountant, very boring job, uh, in 1998, and I was paid 24000 uh, which is equivalent to $46,000 in today's dollars, uh, accounting for inflation. Uh, uh, at the moment, a, a graduate accountant would be paid somewhere between fifty-five and 60000 maybe a little bit more than sixty. who knows. So that suggests that uh, incomes have increased by at least 25% over the last, uh, you know, 20, almost 25 years. Um, so again, that sort of shows that's kind of in line with what my father experienced or in his um, situation, the income increase was around 30%. But in those two professional um, occupations, it shows, and again, it's not statistically reliable, this uh, inf information, and the analysis is anecdotal at best, of course, but my, my thesis or my feeling is that incomes are a lot higher today than what they were 20, 30 years ago. It's not unusual for us to see someone that makes the inquiry with our firm in their 20s and they're earning, you know, six figures. You know, they might be earning 150000 or sometimes $200,000. Now, I started the business 20 plus years ago. That, that didn't happen 20 years ago. You, you got an inquiry from a 20-year-old. They weren't earning that sort of money, even if we account for inflation. So certainly incomes have increased. Again, not uh, not necessarily on a macroeconomic level, but in, certainly in professional occupations and even some non-professional occupations, a lot more than what the average income increases have been. Um, now, together with higher borrowing capacity, remember I spoke about um, borrowing capacity increasing by two to three times. So if your income is increased and your borrowing capacity is increased so you can borrow a greater uh, multiple of your income, then overall uh, borrowing capacity 
together of those two factors have increased around three and a half times. Now, that doesn't fully offset the amount that property has increased, which is four and a half times, but it puts it in better context, doesn't it? Because we look at it today, particularly the property market, and you go, a young person trying to get into the property market, it is you know, hugely more expensive and more difficult to get into the market. But actually, this puts it in better context. And of course, there's going to be situations for people that um, where they can explore uh, more opportunities to increase their income at a much faster rate than what I've just indicated. So I've just sort of looked at a couple of occupations and said 25 to 30% of the, the, the uplift has been. But really, the reality is that um, for, for people that are really driven and, and they're in the right occupations that allow it, um, there's a, a greater opportunity to increase their income at a much faster rate uh, than what, what would have been achievable many decades ago, which is going to have a, a compounding impact and maybe it, it fully offsets the, the price increases. So I'm not suggesting that for everyone it's easier to get into the property market. I'm not suggesting it's more affordable because still at the end of the day we need to repay the debt. Um, having said that, if we just hang on, if we just service the debt and hang on to the property for a couple of decades and we've bought well, then to accumulate a lot of equity as a result of that transaction is easier today in dollar terms. Um, but I'm not saying it's more affordable. I'm talking about the ease of getting into the market. So next time you uh, have a conversation or you're part of a conversation around how property is so much more expensive today and how it's difficult for people to get into the market, perhaps you can remind some of these, remind yourself of some of these factors that I've spoken about today uh, and maybe offer a counter argument that, that to say that for some people it's actually easier today uh, and buying the right property, which I think is the absolute most important thing and most important point I want to get across. Buying the right property today so that you don't make a mistake, so that you really position yourself to be in a much, much better financial position 10 to 20 years from now is definitely a lot easier to do today than it was 20 plus years ago. If I knew what I knew today when I purchased my first property 25 years ago, the financial outcomes for me would have been a lot different. It's the knowledge that allows younger people to make a lot of money from property and the compounding impact of that for the rest of their life is huge. So there you go. I'm sure there's going to be a cohort of people, probably um, a lot of people on Twitter in particular, that are not going to agree with this uh, podcast. Uh, as I said, it's a, uh, I'm talking about some specific occupations here, um, but probably most of my audience, I would say. Uh, and a bit of food for thought there. So until next week, uh, bye for now.